This is the One Accord Podcast, and we are back again, this time with a glorious topic of conversation. That's right, we're talking about the doctrine of glorification, and we will be focusing primarily on the last link of that so-called golden chain of redemption. And if you've heard about this before, we might be having some uh, at least areas of conversation that uh, uh, you haven't heard before, so stick with us. But uh, I'm not here to have this conversation by myself, so let's go ahead and bring in the rest of our team. Brother Greg, how are you? I'm doing great. Morning, Joe. How are you? I am. I am. Uh, I am doing just fine. I think uh, maybe one of these days I'll get to uh, the starting point of great as you are. But uh, good to hear that you're great as usual. Well, it's, we, we film first thing in the morning, and I'm, you know, I, I I'm a guy who'd rather get to work at four o'clock in the morning and then get out at noon if I could. So yeah, um, it's all downhill from here, brother. Fair enough. Well, yeah, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. If I had my way, if I had to choose between either getting to work at 4 a.m. or leaving work at 4 a.m., I'd choose the uh, the other end. I feel like I get better as time goes on. Like a, I don't know. Like a fine wine, Joe. That's Maybe, how I describe sure. you to everyone. Sure, that's what it is. You've always called me a whiner. So there we go. So uh, anyway. <laughs> why know why so, sometimes? Uh, well, uh, anyway, hard fate, hard transition. Uh, Brother Eric, how are you today? I'm doing good. This brutally cold weather finally past and we got some warmer weather now so that's that's a relief but i'm also glad to be here with you guys too well it's nice to see you i, I mean obviously it's a not a, a important matter but are you a morning person night person where, where are you at um i i have actually i've kind of become a morning person i get up about quarter to six every day and uh I, i've gotten used to that so i can i can handle that just fine with a cup of coffee or two uh well uh you know circadian rhythms and all that stuff i uh I can get up, but boy, oh boy, my mind doesn't really start get going until uh, well after we've uh, stopped recording uh, this show. So you guys <laughs> always get me a fuck, no matter how much coffee I drink. But I do my part. I'm trying to drink uh, a lot of coffee as we go along. But uh, uh, well, brothers, it is, uh, as always, wonderful to see you. And uh, we are here to talk about the doctrine of glorification. Um, I'm going to just very briefly lay out kind of the way that I've heard people talk about this, particularly uh, in that, that Romans 8 uh, sense. And then uh, here, if, if, you know, my experience is different than yours, um, uh, maybe you hear people talk about this passage much differently than I do. Um, and then getting into talking about uh, whether or not we agree with that very common way of hearing about it. So I want to just to read the passage, uh, just in case anybody's not aware of exactly what we're talking about. Uh, this passage is in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage is well known. There's much, much, much to discuss in this passage in general. I have heard some call this link of things, particularly at the end, when he talks about being predestined and called and then called and justified and justified and glorified as a great chain of redemption, something that God has done. And a lot of discussion that I've heard is that these things in the scriptures are all past tense. So, of course, in God's mind, uh, our salvation is complete that even from the very calling to our very glorification, calling, of course, is when we uh, come out of darkness into light, we, we are, uh, respond to uh, the gospel, and then we have this path of uh, uh, you know, being sanctified more and more into the image and likeness of Christ until that glorious time at the end when we are made 
completely new that we become, you know, in the resurrected bodies or we, we find ourselves in the very presence of the Lord himself. And so we have the Ordo Salutis from beginning to end, all of it here in Romans chapter eight, the way that I commonly hear it is all past tense to God. And this gets back into some of the things that we were discussing in our last episode, because typically they say, well, God sees everything outside of time. So to him, everything exists in the eternal now. So although we are currently working out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, from God's perspective, we are not only called, not only justified, but even glorified. Is that how you guys have typically heard about this? Would you add different caveats? Because again, I'm just trying to pre present the, the normal view. Almost everybody I talk to that has heard this or talks about this to me, that's the view most of the time. I am throwing out a number, maybe 90% of the time. That's where they're coming from. Is that your experience or you hear it differently? Yeah, I've even heard it, you know, so far as to go, um, you know, everything up to glorification is past tense for a Christian. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase maybe how I've heard it said, but in essence, um, Paul is so certain of these things. He sees our glorification, that last step here, the last link, if you will, um, of being glorified. And again, the interpretation is receiving our, our glorified bodies. Paul is so certain of it, he sees it as a past tense, uh, past tense thing. So um, maybe even, maybe that is even one step beyond or one step uh, greater than what you just described. Sure. It certainly fits with the view that I've been yeah, saying. And yeah, I, think, uh, I think that's a great addition. So thank you. Er Eric, you have, uh, I mean, is that how you hear people talk about it? Uh, is that the common view to you or, or do you hear it more commonly discussed in a different way? Than I would say the view that you described, the interpretation that you described is the one that I've heard probably 99% of the time. Um, I took a different view a few years ago, and I thought I was the only person on earth who uh, took a different view until I heard someone else mention it. So I thought, well, I got, there's two now um, in the world. Who, uh, <laughs> you guys are the, the 1%, the, the true 1%. The 1%. So I thought, yeah. I'm not totally crazy, I guess. I, there, there, there's uh, someone else in the world that, that thinks this way. Um, but yeah, but I, I've heard. Um, it doesn't make you not crazy, by the way. That's Sometimes crazy finds other crazy. That's I think right. I said totally crazy. So I mean, oh, sure. if I'm the only person on earth that believed that, maybe <laughs> I would be totally crazy. But no, um, I guess I could be so crazy. Uh, yeah, but the view you described, yeah, I've heard. I've heard it said that, uh, and not all these words are used in Romans uh, eight, but uh, I've heard people say we've been justified. We are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. And I've I've never I've never really heard any other um, description. I've never heard any other um, any other type of like chronological sequence. Just just that one. And I think there is some truth to that. But I think that uh, I think in Romans eight, there's there's a a better way to look at it that that makes more sense to me. So we can talk about that later. So do you remember what it was that caused you to maybe uh, question or rethink this, uh, this very predominant view? I mean, 99% of people are, are thinking about it one way in your experience. Uh, and then you said that you kind of were uh, started to look at it differently. Do you remember? I mean, was there one thing in particular or was it uh, a, a, an amalgamation of different things that caused you to at least question the, the very predominant view that you've been hearing? The first thing that caused me to question it was when I was reading through Romans 9. In Romans 9, uh, Paul says that there are some who are prepared for destruction, and there are some who, who are prepared for glory. And I thought, um, he mentions glory there. Um, mercy, there's mercy and, and there's uh, destruction, but he, he also mentions 
he also mentions glory. And I, and I got thinking, um, are we, um, you know, when we think of glory, do we have to limit that to the future um, and to, to basically like the next life um, or, the, or the return of Christ? And the reason I started thinking about that was because if you look at uh, the context um, of the passages where Paul talks about they were, some were prepared for destruction, um, destruction there, and I, again, I may be the only person on earth that, that thinks this way, but I've, I've come to believe that the word destruction in Romans 9 is not talking about destruction in hell, but it's talking about destruction in this life. For example, um, when, as a consequence of rejecting Christ, uh, Israel was destroyed by God uh, in 70 AD. God used the Romans as his instrument to do that. And the context makes it sound as if the destruction is, is in this life. So that got me thinking, well, if the destruction is in this life, maybe the glory is also in this life. And there was another text that got me thinking about this. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says that believers are, um, they've, in, in one sense, they have been glorified already, and they're, they're increasing in glory right now. Um, I do think there's a future aspect. I don't, I don't deny that, but I think it's wrong to limit our glorification to the future. Yeah, I think that those are those are interesting considerations. Um, my reason for beginning to question not the doctrine of glorification. I think the um, you tell me if I'm misquoting you, but the the idea that we have been justified, we are being sanctified, we will be glorified. I do agree with that as a as a general theological concept. I think that that is taught in Scripture. Um, the question that is that we're asking specifically today is not, is there a future aspect of glorification? We all agree that there is, and the Bible is very clear about that. The question is, is that what Romans 8 is talking about, or is there something else that's here? And well, I don't want to miss... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think we have to start even before... Like, I don't disagree with that three-part um, analogy, but as far as I'm concerned, um, as I read scripture, as I look up the definitions of things like glorified and justified and sanctified, I have a concern that we're actually, we are giving the word glorification a meaning that, or, or an idea, a doctrine behind it, that isn't how the Bible uses it. Um, and, and so, I, now let me, let me add this on. I have no problem with saying that our future state is our glorification. I'm just arguing that the Bible doesn't talk like that. And so when we, when we in our 21st century use of the word glorification, you know, we've been justified, we are being sanctified, we will be glorified. I don't think we're bringing a biblical definition of the word glorification to that, to that schema. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm with you. And I think everything that you said is, is perfectly fair. And, you know, going back to even like our systematic theology view, all of us, we, we want to systematize the teaching of scripture uh, that starts, of course, with first understanding the individual passages so that then we can link them together appropriately. And I expressed, and, you know, I, I, I don't know that you guys would put it in exactly the same terms, but I, I feel like we all at least see the danger that, you know, all the good things that come from systematic theology, we're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But there are some very serious dangers that 
once we start to link these things together, we make these presuppositions, we put our definitions of words like on a note card or in a spiral notebook or, or some other way, we bring these definitions in our mind and then we do, we begin to read those into passages and we kind of force passages to say what we think they ought to say. And so I read glorification. If I think glorification is something in the future, which there's truth to that. There, there are passages that talk about glorification in the future. But then I read this verse that says glorified past tense. And I go, okay, well, glorification's in the future. This says past tense. So it must mean future. I go, well, wait, wait a second. We might have just gone well beyond what is written. Like if God means future, why doesn't he use the future tense? If the, if the best way to say this is we have been justified, we are being sanctified, we, we have this great confidence and hope that we will be glorified. If that's what he meant, why didn't he just say that? And so sometimes the theologians come along and the systematic theologians come along. We, we, we cut these very clear lines that are so um, beautiful that we almost think, well, they must be inspired because what they said is so much clearer than what we're reading in the text. And the reason that the text isn't clear is because we've muddied it with our overly specified definitions. And so I love that what you said, and I, I, I just want to reiterate it and jump on those coattails. We need to say, how does the Bible actually use these terms? And Eric, that's, that's the heart of what you were saying. Well, in Romans 9, he seems to be using these terms in ways that are maybe about this life rather than the future life. And so if that's the case, like, am I missing out on something that's being said about what God has done um, regarding glory in the here and now? So, um, you know, biblical usage is important. And I, I see, you know, a lot of conversations break down because it's, doing the hard work of actually looking up all the words. It's not just as simple as going and even looking in the, the dictionary or the lexicon. Some people do that. They, you know, some people don't even have the ability to do that. Although now with, you know, with uh, internet tools and stuff like um, uh, Blue Letter Bible, I think is super easy. You know, you can go to anything. You can just click on the word. It gives you both the English and the Greek. You can have the Bible lexical Hub. entry right there. Bible Hub's another one. There, there's so many free resources that are excellent. But sometimes people can be deceived into thinking, well, whoever compiled this lexicon, they must be, you know, they mu all this information must be right. And maybe we just pick whatever these meanings mean. Well, no, we have to go by the usage. And to actually go, if you have like a Strong's Concordance, an older resource, those huge books, go and actually read every single occurrence of this word and read it in its context and see what's going on. You'll find that most of the time these words are not used. Sometimes they are, but most of the time they're not used with this overly technical nuance. They always mean exactly the same thing every single time. And so uh, I don't view this as a golden chain of redemption. I view it as something different. In fact, I think it's, to, to not be trite, even more glorious than that. Not because it, it denies what we all agree, that there is a future aspect of glorification, but because it does teach that there is a present aspect of glorification, which if we miss, um, we're missing something huge, something glorious. Greg, what about you? Do you, uh, I think you've already kind of uh, shown your hand a little bit, but do you view this as a, as a golden chain of redemption or do you view this passage uh, differently than that? Yeah. Um, tongue and, well, first of all, no, um, I was, it's funny, I was many years into my Christian walk and I often heard people talking about the golden chain, you know, the golden chain of redemption. And, and, and I, frankly, I didn't know what they were talking about. And so I had read Romans a number of times, still hearing that, but again, not knowing what they were referencing. And then one day, you know, it was brought front and center to my attention. And I went, well, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Where, where's the chain at? Um, now I understand people read this and they see a chain and, and I've told you guys before, um, tongue in cheek, I don't call this the golden chain. I call it the golden onion. Um, I love it. Uh, yeah. I mean, 
you can call you know, pulling from the old Shrek movie that, you know, it's got layers. It's, 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 I don't see it as a chronological link of things. I see it as, as layers and layers of gracious, wonderful gifts that God has done. And so I don't come to this text reading primarily a chronological uh, set of events. Now, am I denying that we could talk about what predestination is? We could talk about what called is. Are those things, uh, do those things precede us being justified the moment we come to faith? If that's, um, sure, there is some chronological sense in which these things happen. But because I don't view it as a um, primarily chronological description of something, um, I don't see it as a chain at all. I see it, again, as a golden onion. So, uh, the, again, the, the, uh, the terminology, I, I like it. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's good for us at least to <laughs> let everybody know exactly what we're talking about, because your, your experience, I'm sure, isn't different. Sometimes people, you know, we, we get so used to using the terminology, especially on the inside, you know, you, you spend enough time around theology, you throw around the same things we've heard before. Um, it can be, uh, it can be exclusive. It excludes people from understanding. So the golden chain of redemption, Romans eight twenty eight to 30. Um, I think your, your articulation of it is great. Is this a chronological sequence, a logical and chronological sequence of events? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And be, from either God's perspective or, or Paul's perspective, because again, they're so confident that this chain that has begun uh, will be completed, that that's what's being described. The, the layers idea is very different. So can you like explain that a little bit more? Like you've, you've said, okay, I don't necessarily view it as chronological, but as layers, but like, what is that? What difference does that really make? Um, and is time still an aspect of that? Or how does that make better sense maybe of the, the past tense that we're seeing here um, as opposed to thinking that, okay, this past tense is past in God's mind because he lives in the eternal now, but it's still future for us. So, I mean, how is the, yeah. explain it a little bit more, because I'm, I'm sure that sure. many people haven't, I've had at least a, a little bit of a, a, a preview of this, but most people maybe are hearing this for the very first time. And uh, uh, so the golden onion, how is this a, a better a better way of looking at this? So as I try, when I, when I teach the Bible, often a point that I try to make is, um, as as the biblical authors are giving you an example or an application of something, you need to realize that that example um, isn't the point. It's an example of the point. It, it's, it's trying to bring that point home. And I don't think the point that, that Paul is trying to make, um, you know, in verses 30, or verse 30, basically, and, and um, through the end of that verse, is a point about the chronological nature of these events. I think what he's trying to talk about is look at, going back to verse 28, look at what God has done. You know, let me lay before you all that God has done um, as an example of causing things to work together for your good. He predestined and he called you and he, and he justified you and he's glorified you. Like he, this is almost kind of a, just a, a it's not poetic. I'm not being poetic. I'm just saying it's almost like a poetic layering on of, the, you know, he's done this and he's done this and he's done this. Um, Praise God, look what he's done for you. Um, but then when we, in my opinion, when we take that and say, oh, no, no, what he's trying to do here is lay out some chronological sequence of it, I think we're just misunderstanding what the, what the author was trying to, to communicate. Yeah. 
I agree so with I, that. I choose onion because, again, I think it's funny. Um, yeah. We could, you know, whatever. Well, it sounds delicious to me. So I, I'm, I'm on board uh, for sure. Have you ever had one of those deep fried onions, man? Those are oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, let's go right now. Let's I'm, go. I'll, I'll buy. Uh, um, no, the uh, keeping it in its context is very interesting. And so just like you guys, you know, I, I, Greg, I think that the, regardless of the terminology, this, this layered aspect, as I hear you talking, unless I'm mishearing you, and you can please correct me if, if, if I'm hearing you wrong, he is, he's, he's, he's making a point about something that God has already done, not just in his side, but like even for them, like we, we should look at this. And to be fair, again, we don't have somebody who, who maybe holds to the golden chain of redemption view. They, they would say that, well, that, you know, to view our current circumstances in light of our future glory um, certainly is a biblical idea. Um, I just happen to think that when that's happening, they, they tend to use the future tense. Like he, he does talk about that. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about living with the view to this thing that is coming. And, you know, he's talking about the future. So look at what God is doing in the future, what he's told us, and live in light of that. This past tense language just, again, I couldn't get past that. I'm like, I, I just, I'm really having a hard time when you tell me, you know, and we've, we've talked about our hermeneutic before. I just, I tend to believe that the, the scripture means what it says. And so if he's saying that this is something that is past tense, that those who have been called uh, have been predestined to something to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, that we've also been justified and that we've also been glorified. You, you look at the context and say, all right, well, what is, what is going on? And interestingly, even outside of this verse, you went back to the verse 28, which I think is perfectly appropriate. If we go down and he's talking about how, um, you know, Christians are, are going through all these difficulties, that seems likewise to be going back to explain what was there in verse 28 that you just read um, and that we started with, that we look around, especially in the life of, of, of early Christians who are receiving this letter in the first place, and they're being persecuted, at least in, in part, by the, the Roman government, um, although persecution hadn't gotten terrible at this point, but it was starting. Um, certainly Jews and Gentiles were, were counting the cost from their own culture and their own groups and their own families as they were coming together in one body and, and worshiping the Lord. And some of them were being put through tribulation and distress and per persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword, like verse 35 says. And then he quotes this, this passage from the Old Testament saying, for your sake, for God's sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, also past tense. And so God's love for us and what he's doing, if they look by sight, it's not all that glorious. In fact, it's, it's pretty terrible. But I think he's saying what God is doing and how he's working all things together, what God is doing currently, not just what he will do in the future, but what he's doing currently is a glorious thing. And the usage to me, I, 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 then I started to look and say, okay, well, what is, how does the Bible use this verb glorify? And, and this term glory is Eric, you brought in from, from Romans nine and elsewhere. How does the apostle Paul use this? How do other biblical authors use this in both the new and the old Testament? And it's not just about the future. God has done something amazing. He did it in Israel when he caused his, his presence to dwell among them. He glorified them. And now in the church, Likewise, we are, we're reconciled to God and he dwells not just in a temple, but in us. And he has glorified us. And people don't realize the glory of what it is to receive the Holy Spirit, to be the temple of God on earth, to, to be a Christian, even to suffer persecution for his name. It's just this incredibly glorious, 
present tense reality because God has glorified us. When you know, we were called, we were justified, we're, we're being sanctified, and he has caused his presence to dwell in us. So he's glorified us, and that glory that he's put in us continues on to the present tense. And Israel, in large sense, Romans chapter 9, rejected that. And now the church, believing Jew and believing Gentile, are receiving an even greater glory. And I don't know if, we, if you guys have the interest or the, the, the time, we can go through all these usages and kind of build that case. But well, that's how I view it. And I don't know if you guys are hearing anything in what I'm saying that, that you would disagree with. I didn't hear anything in what you guys are saying that I disagree. Yeah. So just a couple of comments. First, if, first as, a, as a hermeneutical rule, if you're willing to take that last phrase um, in chapter 30, or excuse me, verse 30, chapter 8, and say, well, he really means this in the future tense. If, if you're willing to change tenses as a hermeneutical rule and justify what I think is an eisegetical approach, like you throw out all of hermeneutics. You, you've, you're violating basic sound hermeneutics when you say, well, no, no, no. What he means is um, future. He doesn't mean this in the past tense. So understand doing that is horrible, a horrible violation of hermeneutics. Um, but to your point of, uh, of the definitions of the word. I think we should define glory. I think we should define glorify. And so I started doing that this week. Um, you know, I sat down to do a word study and, you know, a word study can be, it can be very easy or it can be quite intense. And I, I choose a more intense route. Um, found blessedly, I'd already done the word study on, uh, glorify. Um, but the word glory, and I've just stuck to the new Testament, uh, doxa, uh, for or doxa for for glory, doxazo for glorify, um, and there were 150 or excuse me, 168 references to glory, and ended up having well, not having to. I chose to write out each and every one of those verses, and so when I when I saw I had to do those nearly 200, I was very uh, felt very blessed that I'd already done the 70 or so for glorify. <laughs> so cut, not, didn't cut my work in half, but cut my work quite a bit. Down what conclude? What conclusions did you come to, uh, or did you come to any conclusions, or, or you still got? Did it raise new questions or answer anything as you uh, as you did that hard well, work? One man, I, I'll tell you what. I found it very interesting for many other paths of thought to look at every use of glorify, or excuse me, uh, glory in particular. Um, as I was writing out again, each and every New Testament instance of glory, um, I saw some themes develop. Uh, so, but that, I mean, that's, that's besides the point. Um, as I read every verse for glorify and for glory, I never saw in any one of those verses um, our current modern understanding of glorify talking about receiving our heavenly bodies. Um, I, I could be proven wrong there. Um, we can look at the definitions, but I don't, I don't see the need. The, the idea that we hold that to be glorified means receiving our heavenly bodies. I, I don't, I don't see that in any one of the of the new Testament verses. You say you write them, wrote them out. Like you yeah. actually wrote them out by hand. Type, typed them out by, well, I didn't, not pencil, but typed them out. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, um, yeah, that's a that's an uncommon level of uh, of commitment. You're right. You do choose the intense uh, the I intense do. form. Well, I find um, it I find it so helpful, right? Because I mean, it's one thing to it's one thing to put your eyeballs on it, but it's another thing to have to consider it 
as you're typing it out. So yeah, no, that's fair. Um, Erica, you have, I mean, as you've studied this before, you have other, again, clarifications that have come. I mean, do you agree with what Greg's saying or, or uh, other caveats that you would add? I have only one <clears throat> small point of disagreement, um, possible disagreement, uh, but I'm going to save that for last. I'm going to try and um, make this not a sermon, <clears throat> um, but I want to actually, uh, I want to um, just. We'll, we'll pray for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I want to actually just um, reinforce what you guys just said by adding something to it. Um, I think that, um, Greg, you said earlier that the whole point of Romans 8 verse, uh, I think it was 30, um, by going over the called, um, he called, he justified, sanctified. The whole point of mentioning these things is to uh, encourage them uh, in the midst of their circumstances. If God has done all these things for you, then God will see you through to the very end. Um, you can count on God. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point um, of listing those, those things in Romans 8.30. Um, but let me just be more specific, and you guys may disagree with this, um, uh, but I, I think that view is even more greatly strengthened if we recognize that those he's talking about are Jews, or we could say Israel. Um, and the reason why this is important is because why he's, why he's telling them uh, you have been, you know, you've been called, you've been justified, you've been glorified, is to encourage them because they're wondering, why has the majority of Israel been rejected by God? If God has rejected the majority of Israel, why is he, why won't he reject us? And Paul's saying he won't reject you because look at what he's already done for you. He's called you, he's justified you, he's glorified you. Now, why do I believe this is talking about Israel? Well, there's, there's several reasons, and like I said, I'm going to keep this um, somewhat brief. But uh, in Romans 8.29, Paul speaks of those who God foreknew. And if we compare this with Romans 11, verses 2 through 4, I think those whom God foreknew refers to faithful Israel. Uh, that's, that's, that's the first thing. I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's any um, difference in audience uh, from Romans 8. 29 to uh, Romans 11, um, verses 2 through 4. I think Paul's talking about the same group there. Um, both, both places are talking about faithful Israel. Um, now, in Romans 8.30, he says, um, and these whom he predestined, he also called. Now, I want to first say this. These things can all be applied to Gentiles, and they are applied to Gentiles. So I am, I'm not saying that that all these things are limited to Jews. All I'm saying is here in Romans 8, I think they're specifically applied to Jews. Now, why do I think that? Um, well, Paul was speaking to those who were formerly under the law. And uh, earlier in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, that, seems to be, um, that seems to be the case. In Romans 8, 15, notice very carefully the language where Paul says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Now, when he says fear again, what he means is God has not called you to this kind of fear that you had while you were under the law. That's how every trans, uh, every, not translator, but every Bible commentary I've ever read is, has said, uh, this is talking about 
uh, fear um, that they had while they were under the law. Uh, and the previous chapters, um, I think, reinforce that. And then in Romans 8.23, he says, not only this, but we also are, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, when he says first fruits, he's talking about those who were the first to receive the Holy Spirit. And who were the first to receive the Holy Spirit? The Jews. The Gentiles came later on. So I think here in Romans 8, Paul is specifically talking about Jews who, of course, are Christians. And he's telling these Jews, he's saying, God's not going to reject you like he rejected unbelieving Israel, because, of course, unbelieving Israel rejected Christ, and you haven't. And not only that, but he uh, has already called you, he's already justified you, and in a sense, he has already glorified you. So that, that was their assurance, that was their evidence that God was not going to reject them like he rejected uh, unbelieving Israel. And in, again, in Romans 9, you read Romans 9, and the, the issue is, well, you know, shouldn't God have done this for all Israel? Um, you know, the, the, the interlocutor, I think it's in Romans 9, what is it, 20? Um, you know, why did you make me this way? Uh, well, he's, I believe that, that the, the challenge is made by a Jew. God, how could you have, uh, you know, hardened unbelieving Israel and only chosen just a few uh, from Israel, the believing remnant of Israel, uh, for glory? How could you have done that? And God has every right to, to do that. He has every right to reject unbelievers, um, even if they are Jews and, uh, and choose believers. So I say all that just to make the point that glorified here, I think is best understood in the past tense, because Paul's saying, God has already done this for you. He, this is what he's already done. In 2 uh, Corinthians specific chapter— to, Specific to Israel, not, not specific—well, he's not talking specifically, in your opinion, about the glorification that a Christian receives upon his— along with his justification and all that. Like, like I said earlier, this applies to all Christians. Romans 9.24. I'm not questioning that you're saying that it applies to them. I'm, I'm asking, are you saying, in your opinion, that the glorified and the justified um, specifically is talking about uh, Jews here, not Christians? I Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, yeah. So yeah, only this, these, Jewish, these are Christians. This, this text is only talking about specifically, or do you, Jewish Christians? That, that's that's who I think is is in view. Yeah, I I think that um, again, uh, Romans nine twenty four, Paul applies this both to Jews and Gentiles. So it's it's not as if we we can't we we just can't apply any of these things to Gentiles because Paul he does. But I think in Romans 8 specifically, um, Paul has Jews in mind. And I think, um, I think the context makes that. Uh, I think the context, to me, um, I definitely disagree. Seems to reinforce that. I, hear, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I definitely disagree. But in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, or with ever-increasing glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So Paul speaks of glorification here 
in the present tense. He's saying we are, we are experiencing this glorification now. We're being transformed. We're increasing in glory right now. It's not, it's, it's not limited to the future. This is happening for us right now. Uh, so I, I think that, um, I think that makes a, a strong case that the glorified here should be in the past tense. Now, let me just say this real quick. Can I, can I add one, one more verse just yes, here in second sure. Corinthians three? Um, what, what verses were you reading from second Corinthians three? Just verse 18. Yeah. I want to just back up to verse 10 for indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So he was comparing the glory, uh, even of Moses and his face shining and, and what was going on with God's presence dwelling uh, in the nation of Israel, in the tabernacle, and eventually in the temple. Um, to the new covenant believers. And so he was uh, saying that that, that was incredibly glorious. Um, but then now that actually compared to the present glory in the church and what believers have with face unveiled, uh, that this, this glory uh, surpasses it. So I just, um, while you were there in Second Corinthians 3, I just wanted to back up and include that uh, as, as well. Yeah, that's, yeah, because it's not like this glory is, is, is some trivial thing. I mean, this is a, this is a, a big, this is a big thing. It's a huge blessing that this is happening. So it's not, because some people might think, well, you know, the future glory really is, that's really where it's at. Well, no, our present glorification is also, like you said, very glorious. It's not something to just be trivialized, like it, it really doesn't mean anything. But I want to say this too. Um, now, let's just suppose, just for sake of bringing up another point, let's just suppose that Romans 8.30 is um, talking about future glorification. Now, one of the reasons why some people think that it is, is because there are texts that are written in the past tense that do refer to future um, events. For example, Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Christ, approximately. The whole chapter is written in past tense, as if it had already happened. And some would say, well, it's in the past tense to denote the certainty of these events in the future. And I think that's a reasonable interpretation. But that's in a completely different context. Um, so I, I, don't, I wouldn't apply that same, you know, hermeneutic to, to Romans 8 necessarily. But let's just, let's just say that, that it is future. Um, I, I, I still don't believe that means that this is unconditional, that God is going to most certainly do this for every believer without exception. Because in Romans eight seventeen earlier in the chapter, he says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I would argue, and this is kind of going to your last point, Greg, I would, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, it seems to me like Romans 8.17 is talking about probably a future glorification. Um, the context makes it seem that way. I don't think we have to interpret Romans 8.30 as future. And, because it's it's in the past tense, um, but I think I, I would argue that in Romans eight seventeen, it it does sound as if Paul is talking about um, future glorification. So I guess one, I don't know, how, I'm not sure how long we are into the episode. Um, we still haven't defined glorify or glory, um, and, and so I'm I'm a little worried that people listening might hear us talking like. What are you trying to say? Because again, if what when you hear future glorification, if you're still thinking of receiving a heavenly body, a spiritual body, as what we're talking about, at least I, I'm not saying that when I talk about future glorification. Yes, I believe we will be glorified. 
Yes, I believe there's a future glorification. No, I don't believe Romans 8.30 is talking about it, not denying future, um, but I still not saying anything about receiving some future heavenly body if that's what you are thinking you're hearing me talk about when I say future glorification. Can you define your term? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm pulling, if we're going to, to glorify, I'm pulling directly from the BDAG, from uh, Blue Letter Bible. Um, They, according to, according to that scholarly fount of knowledge, um, they say the biblical usage is first to think, suppose, or be of an opinion, a high opinion, two, to praise, extol, magnify, celebrate, third, to honor, to do honor to, to hold in honor. Um, and fourth, here's where you can make an argument. Maybe that's what it's talking about. But fourth, and, and the final one is to make glorious, to adorn with luster, or to clothe in splendor, um, to impart glory to something, to render it excellent, uh, or finally to make renowned, render illustrious, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or something to be manifested or to be manifest or acknowledged. So once again, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. Um, And again, if we're willing to accept those as definitions, none of those, and as you read the text, I would, I would encourage you to read, you know, go do your own research. Um, All of the instances where doxazo, um, glorified, glorify, is in the text, all of those fit easily within those definitions, and I don't think any of them are necessarily talking about receiving our future heavenly body. In uh, in in Thayer's Greek lexicon, and again, I'm um, I'm just quoting them because they they mention a uh, they mention another definition. I'm not sure if you mentioned this or not. It, it sounds like maybe you, um, what you were reading was maybe somewhat similar, because <clears throat> there was there was one time one uh, one point as you were reading when you said this might be what they're talking about. But uh, according to Thayer's, the word um, "glorified" can mean of God bringing Christians to a heavenly dignity and condition, and they they reference Romans eight thirty, which of course we're we would we would deny that reference um but it's it sounds like they understand uh, yeah. glorified at least in one sense to mean god bringing christians to a heavenly dignity and condition i and i think con- yeah. by condition they probably mean a glorified body a, a- so what i had read was to make glorious adorn with luster or clothe with splendor. And someone could say, ah, you're receiving your heavenly body. That's clothing you with splendor. Okay. But again, um, you're making a theological leap there, not, not using the text. Now to, to Thayer's point, if we jump over to the word glorify, or excuse me, glory, um, one of their definition, one of the sub points under one of their definitions for the word glory is the and they're using the word glorious in their definition which is always makes it hard but the glorious condition of the blessedness into which excuse me i'll start over the glorious condition of the blessedness into which is appointed and promised that true christians shall enter after their savior's return from heaven so this glorious and blessed condition to which you're going to go into again 
I'm not denying that, but the idea that that has to mean you're receiving a heavenly body, I go, you're making a leap there that I don't think, first of all, is appropriate or necessary. What do you think about, um, in Romans 8, 17, it says, Paul says that um, we'll be glorified with him. And then he goes on to talk about the redemption of our bodies. I think it's in Romans, it's 8, 20 something. I don't have my Bible in front of me, but but later on in Romans 8, um, Paul does mention the redemption of all things. And he says, um, he's in verse 23, and not only this, but we also are, ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, he doesn't say glorification of our body. Ah, so, he, so now we're talking about it over oh, oh, in Joe's smiling, and I knew he would when you started going on this. We're talking about adoption, which is a different word entirely than Mm -hmm. glorification and so true um i'm gonna i'm actually gonna stop talking because i know joe's gonna have a lot a lot better explanation for where i was about to go well i don't know about that but i i did write an article about this on our website i'll link to it and um you know i i I have hope that in future episodes we will talk about adoption i want to talk about all the the aspects you know and, and if we try and keep them in their box that's that's what happens is that you know we systematics tend to draw these very clear lines that the actual usage itself um, sometimes blurs. And Paul wasn't writing a systematic theology. He's talking about various elements of theology. He's bringing uh, his theological understanding to, to uh, you know, a task of, of, of explaining various things. He's making a point. And, you know, uh, he wasn't attempting to sit down and do what, what our systematic theologians do of writing down these clear lines of, of everything. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I have a lot that I could say about adoption. But um, I'll just throw this out there, and this is a controversial statement, but again, you can read the article if you want. You can look at every usage, because adoption, unlike glory and unlike glorification, has actually very few references. Um, and so it's nice, especially if you want to write them all out, uh, to have a, a, a smaller list, just like foreknowledge. There's actually not that many passages um, that when we look at the actual usage, um, the, the idea of adoption um, actually... In many cases, when we think of the doctrine of glorification, we might do better to actually keep the doctrine but change the terminology and say when we talk about the future glory, the future redemption of our body, that's actually the fulfillment of adoption. But in almost every ordo salutis, uh, adoption goes to the beginning of the quote-unquote chain of redemption rather than at the end. But uh, a passage like this in Romans 8 seems to kick it to the end, actually. So in substance, the doctrine is the same, but the terminology, I think, if we're going to be more biblically accurate, um, adoption greatly encroaches on how the typical use of glorification is used, which then causes us to miss what's being said about glorification. And, and that's, often, that's often how these things work. So, you know, I, I went through and I read all these. I didn't write them all out, but I did put my eyes on them. I guess I did it the, the lazy way, as you were saying. You know, I didn't, I didn't I, write I didn't them all out. I didn't mean to insinuate uh, you lazy. I, I, you, didn't say, you didn't say lazy. Huh? You just said it is more valuable. I agree with you. Had I taken even more time to do it your way, it would have been better. Um, but I didn't limit just to the New Testament. Not that that's a, a bad thing to do. Um, I think that I think we could end up at, um, I mean, in large part, even if we disagree whether this is talking about Jews or Gentiles or talking about both, or it's talking about Jews, but it applies to Gentiles, that stuff, again, to anybody who's watching, we still end up in almost the same place again. Um, it's just a nuanced uh, discussion. Um, and Eric, you made, a, I think, a good point. Sometimes um, there are passages that the past does mean the future and the future does mean the past. And uh, there's things like epistolary aorist and these other aspects in grammar, but the context is what's important. And in Romans 8, it doesn't seem like 
and, and Greg, I think this was your point, because I'm, although it sounds like maybe I'm disagreeing with you, I'm actually agreeing with you. When we come as hermeneutical practice, if we just think we can just change the tenses as we want, that's terrible practice. Or if we come in with predetermined definitions and eisegete them into the text, read these definitions into the text and just change them to mean whatever we think they ought to mean, terrible practice. In a passage like Isaiah 53 or Isaiah, you know, like we know that that is talking about Christ. And, and now there are, there are good reasons to see that as a prophecy, as God predetermines certain things to happen in his mind, that can be passed. There are places where that argument can be made for sure. Um, but as I read through and, you know, people, I guess pe sometimes people don't realize this. The lexical entries, this is a compilation of scholarly information that they're looking at the usages and saying, what, is, what do these words mean? And so they hopefully are doing the hard work that, Greg, you were doing kind of your own original research, looking at every single occurrence and saying, okay, how am I building out? If I had to write the lexical entry, what would I, what would I include? And if you compare different lexicons, you'll see they're not, they don't, they're not all exactly the same. Sometimes some lexicons have a, a broader range of meanings. Other ones have a more defined range of meanings. Sometimes they define terms um, in slightly different ways. Hopefully they're not just saying glory is the state of being glorious. Like that's not all that. It's very unhelpful. <laughs> that's a very unhelpful definition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I know that, you know, the, the translators of at least the New American Standard Bible and many other translators uh, definitely seem to, to sometimes switch honor and glory um, and adorn. And there are certain passages that like if we go back, uh, you already read it, Eric, from 2 Corinthians 3, talking about Moses. Well, the Septuagint version, uh, so not the Hebrew, but the, the Greek translation of uh, the Hebrew, uses when Moses's face was shining, that he would go up and he was, he was glorified. He would go up and meet with the Lord and he would come down in that state of radiance, his face shining like that, the, the Greek word, he was glorified. And so he would be glorified in their face and he would cover it so that they wouldn't see his glorification. And there is some external radiance. Um, likewise, I think uh, in the book of um, Ezra, uh, and they're talking about uh, the king of uh, Persia, right? The king of Persia is um, giving them resources to go back and build the temple. And Ezra praises that the Lord had put it in the heart of the king to, uh, the New American Standard, I think, says adorn, but it's to glorify, to glorify the temple. And it's this external, you know, he's honoring it by, by giving a, a glorious appearance, external experience to it. Um, so when we think about them, the, the uh, uh, I had it written down, uh, John 15, maybe? No, uh, John 17. Oh, which one was it? Yeah, there's a lot of... John 7. Sorry, John 7. seven. Yeah, I was adding a one in front of it. In John 7, Jesus is talking about how he is uh, not yet glorified. And then in the book of Acts, we see that after the ascension that Christ has been glorified. Um, and so, again, I understand how this doctrine comes out. Um, but to think that God could only honor us or only honor his people or that we could only honor God in the future, I think is to miss a huge aspect of the present aspect. And um, Eric, I wanted to drill down a little bit because like Greg, I don't, I don't necessarily agree or I didn't come into this conversation agreeing that Romans 8 is particularly talking about Jews. Um, however, you have given me a lot of food for thought, and I think there is a lot of merit to what you're discussing, uh, even when you think about just how the book of Romans begins. Um, because if we're thinking about, okay, there's this huge broad context of how glory and glorif glorification or glorified uh, is discussed in the Bible. But how is Paul even just kind of, he's framing his own discussion 
Um, in Romans chapter 1, I don't think we read this verse yet, so I just want to read it. Uh, starting at verse 21 to verse 23, we're going to see... Sorry, what chapter? Uh, Romans chapter 1. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, he's speaking, and, and again, typically going into this, I, I, have, uh, I have typically viewed Romans chapter 1 as being um, a condemnation of all of humanity. However, I do think that there is a very... Uh, there is a good case that could be made and Eric, I think you would agree with this, but again, please, maybe I'm mishearing you, but that this is actually specifically being applied, not to all of humanity in general, but to, to the Jewish people. Is that how you, you view Roman, Romans 1? It's, it's laying out a case of condemnation for the Jewish people in particular? It, it's about um, pagan nations generally, but it is a condemnation for Israel. And that's why in Romans 2, Paul says, and you who judge them, you're judging yourselves. He's yeah. talking to Jews. Sure. So it is interesting to think about how these concepts interplay. And again, I don't want us to go completely off. I want us to still focus on the glory and glorification. Starting at 21, it says, for even though they knew God, it's difficult to think of, of unbelievers as knowing God, although certainly I've heard people that interpret it that way. Um, as we talked about foreknowledge last time, knowing seems to have uh, a relational aspect. So in what sense did unbelieving Gentile nations know God? Um, but it's, he says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him, this is glorified. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It seems like there is a glory that those who know God have. And then when we worship false gods, we can exchange that glory for something else. And in Romans 9, um, you know, after this Romans 8 aspect, Romans 9, uh, verse 4, which also I don't think we read yet, but I just want to bring it in. Um, when he was talking about, um, I was talking about his heart for the Israelites. We talked about this verse so much in, in other videos. Um, but as far as we're focusing on this glorification aspect, he says, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Again, this idea that Israel, they, they had glory. And in some sense, unbelieving Israel at least, had exchanged that glory to worship Baal and Molech and, and other false gods and other, other gods of the nations. And they exchanged that glory for a lie. And so then, of course, the reversal of that for believing Jews, but then also for Gentiles, is that they are glorified, that they have now again received that glory, that we know God, are known by God, that he dwells in our midst, that we are his people that we live for him, um, that we magnify and glorify him on earth. Um, those concepts to me just seem to be, again, very, very present tense, that I don't want to exchange the glory of God for a lie in this present life. I don't want to do that. I don't want to worship a false God or walk with God in a way that's dishonoring to him. I want to glorify him and honor him as God um, because God has given us glory that we would give him glory. That Again, that those concepts, especially this these are just a few of the verses in Romans. This concept just comes up over and over and over again. So um, what I, a quick question. Um, if I understand you right, you're, you're positing that verse 23 of chapter one of Romans, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. If I hear you right, I think you, I hear you saying um, that that glory is a glory directed downward from, from, God towards man. And if that's what you're saying, I guess I've never read it that way. 
I've always read that glory as the glory possessed of God. Um, basically, they've exchanged, um, and one of the definitions of glory is um, a, is a thing belonging to God, the kingly majesty which belongs to him, a supreme ruler, ma- uh, majesty in the sense of absolute perfection of deity. So I've always read that not as um, a glory coming from God to man, but a glory that God possesses. So they they said, hey, listen, we don't want, we're not interested in your glory, God, your this thing about you that is so magnificent and praiseworthy and amazing. Instead, we're choosing um, this this image and form of corruptible man. So I guess we, we definitely, I think we read the uh, the exchanging of the glory as two different things. Um. Yeah, I uh, I agree with what you're saying, and um, I am what I'm suggesting. I don't think is necessarily mutually exclusive of that. Let's say we did everything that you just said that God had. This is God's glory, and He had given it to them, and they exchanged it. They also are glorified when they don't exchange it. Like this. so, there's. I don't think it's contrary to what you're thinking necessarily. Um, and typically, like I said, I, I'm. Even as I'm just thinking about these concepts and, and some of the things that Eric has brought in, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm exploring some other ways of, of understanding this that didn't just fit with my, you know, how I read them before. But I, I agree with you. Um, I'm not intending to say something so radically different than what you just said, um, because everything you said is, I mean, for almost my entire Christian walk has been exactly how I read it. And I don't, I don't intend to get rid of that. I just think that there is something that is being described in addition to that. That again, I'm throwing out for more conversation to see if that's you know crazy or not. That God, in giving His glory to Israel, something that they were, in some sense, stewards of, that they were to magnify His name and to to spread that knowledge of the glory of God to the very ends of the earth. That when they exchanged it, they too become less glorious. And yeah. there are I don't uh, disagree passage, with that. Sure. So um, yeah, I I don't um you know if you I guess were the hearing, one thing I think be, because I've never before read um you know, verses 18 through 23 as specifically about Israel. And the reason I don't, I think, is because of the argument in verse 20, uh, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood uh, through what's been made so that they are without excuse. Like that verse 20, in my mind, points me to he's talking about unbelieving Gentiles because here's why they should have known um, rather than um, they should have known because they had the glory right there in front of them. They're, yeah. they're Israel. Um, if, if that had been the argument or, or, or some other experiential knowledge, relational knowledge, rather than factual knowledge, I, I would see it. I think I'd more easily see this as talking about Israel rather than talking about unbelieving Gentiles. Yeah. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, I think, and if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, I mean, I have, I've engaged in evangelistic conversations with people in the same way. You know, when people say, oh, you know, you, you have no evidence for God. Creation declared, like, you know that there's a God because, you know, intellectually, you know that there's a God. Mm-hmm. Um, however. Or you should. You should. Uh, and now you've exchanged that for something else. You now think that something else has happened. Um, I am exploring the possibility, uh, and I am again, Eric, maybe I'm mishearing you so you can, uh, but I, I've, Eric, you're not the first person that has said it to me. Um, 
But the first person that I heard that kind of suggested that the, you know, as you, to use even the language you used before, the, the kind of the interlocutor, like who is, who is Paul talking to? Um, he's not writing to modern Christians, modern, primarily Gentiles, that Paul was probably talking to primarily a, a Jew. Um, and that, that does kind of change the way that you think about this. So before that, I definitely read this more. Again, Greg, everything that you're saying, I think I, and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to intentionally walk away from that. I'm, I was simply trying to uh, open a little bit more conversation based on what I think I'm hearing Eric say. But again, maybe I, that's why I asked for clarification. Like if that's how you read this, um, I'm not fully persuaded about that yet. Um, uh, and I don't know that I, I will be, but it's, it is a different perspective that I think there is at least some merit to explore. And like I say, I, I, I typically, um, I want to, as much as possible, sometimes take off the lenses that I always read scripture through and put on other ones and say, does this make better sense? Um, but I, you know, the, they knew God now I'm, I'm wrestling through, is that an intellectual thing? You know, that there's a God, you know, that there's a creator, his invisible attributes have been clearly known. There's no excuse. That's how I've always read it. Uh, versus did actually that lead to some degree of you actually having a relationship with God and then, then turning away from him, exchanging that for, for idols. I'm at least open to exploring that, if that makes sense, what I'm yeah, saying. No, that, that makes total sense. If I, if I could clarify just a, a, a couple things. Um, yes, please. So in Romans 1, 18 through uh, the end of the chapter, um, I believe that, that Paul is setting a trap for Jews, for his Jewish readers. And he's setting a trap for them because he's trying to condemn them for being judgmental. And what he's doing is he's pointing out um, the things that pagans did uh, in, uh, in the past, in their idolatry, they knew God, and we, and we know how they knew him um, in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, that is in their conscience. For God made it evident to them, and he goes on to say, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, not, being, not understood through the law, that, that comes later. But this is being understood through what's been made, through creation, not through the law, so that they are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. And he goes on to describe the, the idolatry that the uh, pagans were engaged in. But then in chapter 2, he says, you, you Jews who condemn Gentiles for doing these things, if you condemn them, you're condemning yourselves because you have done the same things. And, and he you goes on to say better. this. You should have known better. Yeah, you, yeah. you, you, you knew better because you had the law and they did not. They were going by nature, which was sufficient, but you have a greater revelation. Can, I, can I just pause you for a second? Yes. Greg, is, is everything Eric's saying, is that more in line with what you were saying? Yeah, no, it, it, I, it is clear to me that starting in chapter 2, um, moving on till nearly, well, to the end of, well, all of chapter 2 is focused particularly on um, nailing, nailing the Jews on, on their lack of faithfulness to God. Have no problem with that whatsoever. What I thought I heard before, and maybe I'm not hearing this at all, um, I thought you were saying that um, verse, you know, that that verse uh, 18 through 23, maybe were were particularly about Jews, and I I don't think that's the case. I might I have muddied the waters. Maybe I miss. I probably misunderstood Eric from so, the from the get. So if I, yeah, if I think, I I think there was a little misunderstanding, but we yeah. clarified it. And yeah. and, yeah. and, yeah. and, so, and I, so you're not, so you're not take, saying that. I, I'm, what I yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead, Eric. What, what, I, what I am saying is Romans 1, verses 18 through 30, I think it's 31 or 32 at the end of the chapter. 32, yeah. Is, is talking about um, pagans, Gentile okay. pagans. Now, yeah. but, then we're but on the Paul, same page. But, but, um, it, it, but the reason why Paul But is he's doing it for things, a reason. I completely yes. understand. Yeah, he's, no, he's, no, he's setting a trap no for the Jews, and he's saying, you Jews, you think the Gentiles are so bad? Listen, you guys have done all these things, too. While so, at the same time skewering any Gentiles who once upon a time did or are still possibly participating in those Yes, things. because remember, yeah, absolutely, the, the Jews were still very, very um, uh, hostile, might not be the right word, but very condemning of Gentiles. And there were, of course, Gentiles in the church. Now, let me say this. Um, this goes, I'm, gonna, I'm tying this into glorification because I think we're talking about glorification today. So I want to I tie all this together because I think it all fits. I want to make the bold claim that Romans 1 through 11, 12, uh, Romans chapter 1 verses through all the way through uh, chapter 11, verse 12 is talking primarily to Jews. And the reason why this is important is because the Jews were the ones who were expecting this glorification. Um, now, if you go to, um, and again, Gentiles are mentioned throughout these chapters, but the Jews are the primary audience. Um, if you go to uh, 2.17, but if you bear the name Jew, you, he's talking about Jew, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, he's talking to Jews primarily. In 4.1, what then shall we say that, uh, that, our, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, not, not the spirit, we're not the spiritual. He's not talking about spiritual descendants of Abraham. He's talking about the biological descendants of Abraham. In later chapters, in chapters uh, 6 and 7 uh, in particular, he's talking to people who were under the law. Again, that's Jews, not Gentiles. Um, and and it, so he's, he's building this case, and he's, everything in Romans is connected. All the chapters, one through all these chapters, well, the whole book, but... Romans chapters 1 through 11, 12 are all primarily addressed to Jews. Again, Gentiles are mentioned. There's application for Gentiles. I'm not denying that. But in Romans 8, um, he says, okay, the, the, the glory that you were waiting for, okay, you've, you've got it now. You, you've, been, you've been glorified, past tense, uh, through your acceptance and unity of Christ or your unification with Christ. So I think, I think that, that makes more sense for um, why Paul is talking about glorification to begin with, because the whole, all the previous chapters are addressed primarily to Jews, and they were the ones who were expecting this glorification. Gentiles I had disagree, no I definitely disagree with that. that. Yeah, I, I disagree. I, th I think, I'm going to say I disagree with that. Um, one, based upon the cultural, the historical context of this letter, you know, uh, the fact that there were these some frictions happening in the Roman church as Jews were coming back after being expelled from Rome. Um, That's so, true. That, that now, did happen, I, too. Yep. And I'm not saying you didn't say that happened. Um, I would I would maybe maybe we're saying the same thing. Um, I would phrase it more like this. Paul is writing to to a mixed church from a very Jewish perspective, right? Like he is a Jew. So the fact that many of these things um, are written from a, well, are written towards a, a Jewish perspective, I think could be more easily justified by the fact of who Paul was. 
Um, well, and, no and, doubt. And then, it's... So, so I just, I just don't think, I don't believe that those chapters were primarily directed towards Jews as while it definitely didn't exclude them. Can I? Why? Well, oh, well, go Let ahead. Let me just say just real, just real quick. I, I get that. Now, I want to be, be clear. I am certainly not saying that there is no application for Gentiles. As a matter of fact, um, I taught through Romans, and I applied many of these things to, to, to Gentiles, to myself. Um, so I'm not saying there's no application for Gentiles. What I'm saying is, I, I get another example, Romans 7.1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, who, who knew the law. Of course, the Jews did. All the, all the language from chapters 1 all the way through to into 11, the language is, it, it, it's like he's presupposing that he's talking to Jews. They're, they're, Abraham was their forefather according to the flesh. Um, they, uh, they, they were under the law. Not only, not only did they know the law, but they were actually under it at a previous time. That's what Romans 7 seems to say, Romans 8. Um, other and even Romans six um, sort of teases at that, but I think um, that's why this glorification stuff is so important because you know the Paul's basically saying you guys were expecting all this and you got it now, you guys have this now, so because you have it now, just rest assured that God is for you, not against you. Paul goes on to say too. Um, in Romans 8, uh, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's God's elect? Well, of course, I think Gentiles are included in that. But um, in Romans 11, again, uh, Paul talks about uh, in verse 5, in the same way then, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice or God's gracious election. He's talking about the remnant of Israel. So you, you look at all this language, and again, yes, I do agree with you, Greg. I'm not, I'm not denying that these, these verses have application for Gentiles, and I've always taught that way. But the primary audience, the primary focus is the Jewish people. And the biggest issue is, um, well, again, the earlier chapters, hypocrisy, and how could you condemn Gentiles, and you shouldn't condemn them in the church uh, as a result. Um, but you were waiting for these promises. All these promises were made to you, specifically to Israel, not to the Gentiles. Yes, but but they, the Gentiles get it through Israel. Okay, Israel's Israel's the root. So you Gentiles or you Jews, you were you you yes, you should expect this glorification, and you have it now. God has given this to you, and and that's why, um, you know, that's why you can trust that God is going to be faithful to you, even though He's rejected the vast majority of Israel. So I, that's. Again, I don't want to hammer this into the ground, but that's that's basically how how I understand it. So I, I have a couple of thoughts, and I'll preface it by saying I um, I think I agree more with Greg than I do with you on this, Eric. Um, not that that matters. I just want to clarify kind of the the perspective that I'm coming from. Um, however, I think that there is um, a lot of value in in what you're saying. And again, for anybody who's watching, I just I think that there is. Um, Thinking about the intended audience does tend to change the tone and um, even the meaning of, of various things. And so, um, you know, the exploring the idea of, of who, you know, the first two chapters, I think, is, um, I don't know that I would use that, that necessarily the language of a trap, but I, I think that there is. There, he, is, he is leading them somewhere that in the mind of a, a first century Jew uh, that is, you know, especially one who's, who's trying to 
worship the Lord or, or, or walk with Christ. Thinking about, you know, the condemnation. Yes, they, they should have been judged. And then the point is, well, all throughout the, the history of the Jewish people, they likewise should have been judged. And so God did judge because he's sovereign. He's always been the king over all the nations. He has judged other foreign nations, but he didn't destroy his people completely because of the purpose of, of choosing them in the first place. And so to a Jewish person who is then maybe objecting to the inclusion of Gentiles into the church, I think Paul's laying out that whole thing. This has always been God's plan. And God, yes, God did give these promises to you. Um, and now Gentiles are full participants in this. And I think, again, while, while we've, you know, we, we certainly had a long conversation about this within our, in our Who is Israel videos and stuff, but ultimately we all do agree. The church is this glorious thing that God is, you know, bringing both Jew and Gentile into to the household of faith, that, that we are one body in Christ Jesus. And so um, where I, I, uh, I think that the, the value of what you're saying, Eric, at least as I hear you, and again, for anybody who's watching to consider, I think if we do understand that maybe, maybe the primary objector isn't, you know, framed in our modern Calvinist Arminian debate or something saying, well, can God just, you know, cause certain people to be reprobate and certain people to be elect from before the foundation of the world, that he's actually talking about a frame, he's framing the argument completely differently from a, a Jewish perspective of someone saying, how could God have, in, have brought in these Gentiles? They, they, should have been, they should have been destroyed such a long time ago. And God's saying, well, actually, if, if you want God to judge people, you who knew better, in fact, your judgment should have even been greater because you knew the law and you were under the law and you guys did the same things. And so God endured you and endured your disobedience and rebellion is even enduring the present disobedience and rebellion of many unbelieving Jews that have rejected the Christ who should have been the first to receive him, but instead rejected him. And now he's including these Gentiles who, yes, they should have been condemned, but because God is gracious and, and long suffering and compassionate, he's offering salvation to people that maybe they think don't deserve it. I think that that reframes the conversation. It's an interesting, again, that would be another interesting video all to have on its own. However, I do uh, agree with Greg. That's where I started. That's where I'm going to end because, uh, Eric, I have a very specific question to ask you, particularly about Romans chapter 8. Doesn't the focus shift in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Um, isn't he now just saying, well, I'm not just talking about Jews anymore. I'm talking about for all who are in Christ Jesus. So everything that's about to follow for this is talking about both believing Jew and believing Gentile, that this doesn't just have application necessarily for but he's actually changed focus. If, if even he was talking, let's say in Romans 7, primarily to Jews, doesn't that shift focus in Romans 8, 1, or do you read that differently? Because that's... And I, I want to just quickly interject. Um, and, and I think you're, you're saying it has application for, but not to. I, I, would, I would ask you to think about your use of that language, um, just because that has implications in, in how you read the text. If I'm, if I'm going, well, this isn't to me, but it just, it has applications for me. I, I would just think about that. As Are you, you talking to me or to Eric? No, I'm, talking, talk, I'm sorry, talking to Eric. Okay. Uh, talk, written to the church, uh, Jew, Jews and Gentiles. I, I think by saying it has application for non-Jewish, but it's written to Jewish, I think you, you could be possibly um, taking, it's possible to take that further than you intend. Yeah, because I, I, I don't, I, and I, Eric, please, I want you to, to answer, because I, I agree. I think that Romans 8.1 switches, that it is to us. It's to all who are in Christ Jesus directly, I think. But again, I'm curious how you interpret that. I think the condemnation he's talking about is the same condemnation he mentioned in the previous chapter, condemnation under the law. 
he's talking about um, the, the condemnation that comes from living under the law. And he, Paul describes that in very vivid language all throughout chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore now, unlike, unlike it was under the law, there's therefore now no con- condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, is, is there condemnation then for Gentiles? Well, of course not. But the condemnation he's talking about, I think, is specifically um, the condemnation uh, of, of the law. And that's why he says later on in Romans 8.15, he says, um, You've res- you have received a spirit of adoption, um, not, you know, not leading you to fear again. Now, what does he mean again? He's talking about that's an fear. assumption. What you're about, yeah. I think well, you're the, assuming the, the, that again. The context is the context makes this pretty clear. I mean, well, uh, again, the, 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 the Mosaic law is all as mentioned entirely throughout Romans chapter seven. That's 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 how that's how Paul is. That's that's what leads into Romans eight. Paul had a discussion about the the law of Moses, and he even mentions certain laws, um, specifically like the law of coveting, and and other things earlier in Romans seven. So in Romans 8, 1, when he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying the condemnation that you were experiencing under the law, you don't have that anymore. Now, why do they not have that anymore? Well, notice, and this reinforces the point even more. Notice he says, uh, verse Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life uh, in Christ Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. Now, when, he, when, he, when he's saying the law could not do, he's saying what the law could not do for you, you who were under the law. The, what, the law wouldn't, what, what could the law not do? It couldn't justify people. And not only that, but the law could not empower people to follow it. That was, and that's the whole frustration with the statements in Romans 7. I, I want to follow the law, but I can't do it because the law doesn't empower people to do this. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice this, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That language presupposes that Paul is talking to people who used to be under the law, but are no longer. That's that's how I understand that that section. Uh, I, I will, again, I... I um... I appreciate your perspective, and I, I want to ask you to um, make this point about Romans eight fifteen again because I'm not sure I I'm not sure I understand it. I will just state that I, as I read a lot of those same verses that you're that you're reading, um, you know, I think that he's he's opening the door that all who walk according to the Spirit, all who are in Christ Jesus, like I think that he's he's not primarily talking to the Jews, although certainly talking to the Jews, but also talking to the Gentiles as well. But again, I, I'm I'm not trying to be pedantic about it. You made a point about Romans 8.15 in particular that I've never heard before, and I, I just I'm, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Um, uh, you said something about uh, fear again. Uh, can you clarify what you said about uh, that? That you, you made a, a big point about fear again. I don't, I'm not understanding what, the, what your point is. So, so he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. This, is, this was the kind of um, uh, attitude that the Jew had under the law, this this slavish fear of condemnation under the law. They lived under the law. The law was constantly condemning. It was constantly, uh, you know, beating them down. Their conscience, uh, that kind of stuff. So when he says, 
you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. The word again means you're not in the same situation you were when you were under the law. The situation has changed. The law condemned you. You're in the spirit now. You have, the, you have a spirit of adoption. Um, that changes the way that you look at God. Um, you used to look at God as a basically like a, a tyrant that was, and not necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking generally. Like the Jews, obviously, they knew God was good. They knew God was, they knew God that lo- God loved them, um, I guess, if they were believing Jews. Um, but they, they had this almost slavish fear. Peter talks about this in Acts 15, I think it's verse 10. Um, Paul talks about this in, uh, I think it's in Galatians chapter 4, if I remember right. Um, I could be. Uh, he talks about the slavery one. or the receiving the spirit of adoption in Galatians. Um, he does. Okay, maybe that's what it was. Are you but, talking but about here, the, when the fear aspect? When he says fear again, I think he's talking about the kind of fear that the Jews had while they were under the law. And that's the kind of fear that he describes or the frustration that he describes, I think, in Romans chapter 7. And, um, you know, this whole thing where the law is just, you know, I want to do what's right and I can't. Notice in Romans, in Romans 7, starting at verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now notice what he says in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. This is how I understand that. When he first came to realize that he was a sinner that was revealed by the law, the law pounded his conscience. Okay, It, it, it hammered his conscience to the point where he said, uh, you know, I, I was, it's like, I, it's almost like I died. You know, I died to, or a person, a person under the law should have died to self-righteousness because the law kept, you know, exposing sin, exposing sin, which is, which is what it was meant to do. So this condemnation that, that uh, was aroused by the law or was made known by the law, they lived in this. They, the Jews lived in this. Now, they did know, of course, you know, there was a day of atonement. They knew God was gracious. They knew that, that God was willing to forgive. And it wasn't, it wasn't as if they had no knowledge of, of God's forgiveness. Of course, they did. But it was just the way that the law was, the way that it was, it was uh, made to be, it was, more, it was condemning. And I think that, so that, was, that, that aroused this fear in them, this slavish fear. And I think that's the fear that Paul's talking about in Romans 8.15 when he says, you know, this spirit of adoption, this doesn't lead you to have this kind of fear again that you had under the law. You don't have that fear anymore because in Christ, there's no condemnation. I definitely see what you're saying. Um, Again, I attribute much of what you're saying to Paul's personhood as a Jew seeing the world through very Jewish eyes. But when I see in verse 12, which is right above where we're talking about, so then brethren, we are under no obligation. I think to say, to say this is talking to Jews does, does more potentially opens the door to more trouble than you realize. Um, and it, and again, it ignores much of the historical con- context of. Well, of, what, what, let me ask this: What trouble would it lead to, and what historical context would contradict it? 
um, the context that this was written to a very mixed church, and you're saying this I letter is I never denied written- that. No, in Romans eleven thirteen, Paul says, "And you Gentiles." Uh, so he, Paul, Paul is speaking. The, the The audience is not only Jews. Uh, there's Jew and Gentile in the church, and I've, I've, I've said that all along. My my point is just that in Romans one, uh, we'll say one eighteen through eleven twelve, the primary audience is Jewish people, Jewish Christians. And again, I, as I've said before, that doesn't mean that Gentiles can't, you know, get anything from the text. Of course they can. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, both Jew and Gentile are, are under sin. But he's talking, he's talking specifically, primarily to Jews, to make the point that you Jews are no better than Gentiles. Because you who condemn the Gentiles for doing X, Y, and Z— you do the same stuff. You're under sin too. Don't pretend like you are superior to the Gentiles when you're sinners also. So I, I think the I think the primary audience in that in that section is Jews, but that that most certainly which is everything does not except that, the which is everything except the introduction, the application, and the salutation. Romans one eighteen through eleven twelve I think is written primarily to Jews. Fair enough. Yeah, you know, Romans eleven thirteen. 13, um, it could be argued that he's clarifying that even though it might sound like he's speaking uh, to the Jews, that he's, he's actually speaking to Gentiles as well. But um, this also has glorify in it. It's tra- translated as magnify, but he's glorifying his ministry uh, as he's talking about um, how it is that he's uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. It's interesting. Well, this is, to th- can I say this real quick, Joe, yeah. about Romans eleven thirteen. What Paul's doing is this. He's, he's basically saying, yes, the majority of Israel has been cut off from the olive tree. But you Gentiles have no business uh, being arrogant or proud because you'll be cut off too if you don't uh, continue in the faith. And also, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You're not. These promises were made to Israel First and foremost, and God graciously allowed the Gentiles to to be uh, you know to gain the promises also through faith. So he's so Romans eleven thirteen. I don't think I don't think Paul's saying uh, you you Gentiles. You know I've been talking about you all along. I think he's just reminding. Listen, yes, these things have happened to, to Israel, but you need to make sure that you don't become arrogant uh, as a result. Yeah. The, so you know these. Um... I think your 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 interpretation is is coherent. You know, certainly we had a, a lengthy conversation. You know about uh, many of these things before, and so I won't uh, I won't uh, try and go back uh, to revisit that. Certainly, anybody who wants to, it's uh, it's on tape. You can go watch it if you want to. Um, but uh, we do view you know some of these things slightly differently, um, uh, and I don't think that your view is incoherent. I, again, I do just for clarity's sake. I, I find myself reading it m- more similarly to Greg. Um, I do think that, uh, again, I hope that anybody that's watching will will at least consider, you know, how the audience um, does potentially change the focus of what's being said, potentially change, you know, how the the, the sting of what's being said. Um, and in some cases, the, the interpretation is even more um, uh, varied than in others. Um, in certain cases, again, it doesn't sound like an Eric, you correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like even if you think that that in Romans eight in particular, 
that this is written to Jews, that you think the application is still basically the same as what Greg and I are saying? Yes. That and it's I, and still me, for Gentiles in the same way? Yes. Or and let, would let you me say just, it differently? Let me just give you a reason why. No, Now, notice that in Romans 1 through 8, he's been talking, well, at least in my opinion, he's been talking primarily about Jews. But then in Romans 9, uh, let's say, uh, let's start at verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So what, he, what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, I've been talking about Jews this whole time. But don't think that this is, I'm not applying these things to Gentiles too, because I am applying. There is application for Gentiles. Gentiles are, the Gentile believers anyway, they are also prepared for glory. Um, and they're, they're included in these blessings too. This is not, the application is not only for Israel, uh, not only for believing Israel, but there's application also for, for, um, for believing Gentiles too. So it sounds, and you guys, you can correct me if, you, if I'm misunderstanding you. It sounds like we do all believe that the Apostle Paul is applying these truths directly to both Jews and Gentiles. We just think that he's doing it in different places. I think he's doing it there in Romans 8. He makes that transition with Romans 8.1. I think Romans 8.1 serves the same type of purpose as what you just read. Um, although you just, you happen to think he's doing it later rather than earlier, but he's doing it in the same book eventually. I mean, am I, am I misunderstanding what you're saying? So can we say that there's no condemnation for both Jewish and Gentile Christians? Yes, we can say that. Amen. Um, that's that is that is true. Um, is it true that that uh, um, that both Jewish and Gentile Christians have have a spirit of adoption? Absolutely, they do. And in Galatians chapter four, I think it's uh, I think it's verse six, Paul applies that same thing to Gentile Christians, and he doesn't limit it to Jews. So there is absolutely application for Gentiles. I am I'm certainly not um, limiting the application to Jews only. But I just I just think that the primary audience, this is all I'm saying, the primary audience, not the not the only audience of any kind, but the primary audience in those those chapters are are Jews. So quick question. Um and again, we're we're way off topic here, but I'm curious. Um I'm sorry. Where, I, I, yeah, I got us okay. way, no, way no. off. Um, it, there is, perhaps, there is no doubt that the you in 1119 is talking about Gentile believers. Um, and so where is your transition point again in chapter 11? 13. 12, he said. Yeah, verse 12 and 13. So you're... So, so you're... So there's a there's a hard change happening in verses eleven or twelve and thirteen where he's now talking primarily to Gentiles, not primarily to Jews. Is, is your is your understanding? I think that it, I think that in chapter eleven and and I think it's verse thirteen where he's that the audience has shifted. Now he's speaking primarily to Gentiles. Um, again, fair enough. It, it, Again, is there is there application for Jews there? Well, of course, I, I, the application is is universal for for both Jews and Gentiles, but it's just it's it's the audience. And I only I I got us on this enormous enormously long rabbit trail, um, just simply to make the point that what you're talking about glorified in the past tense, that makes even more sense and is reinforced if you take I believe the position I'm trying to propose here that that Jews are in mind primarily. 
And if you, if you take that position, glorified in the past tense makes even more sense because that's what, that's what the Jews were, uh, were expecting. That's what they were longing for. And that's what they ended up getting under the new covenant. So getting back to glorified in that conversation, verse 30, chapter 8, what would you guys say if you had to put a definition on the word glorified as it's used there, what would you say that that definition of glorified would be? Eric, you want to go first? Well, I, my, my belief is in Romans 8, I, I compare that to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it sounds as if um, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that as we behold um, the gospel, uh, we, we are basically beholding the glory of Christ. And the more that we behold the glory of Christ, the more we are becoming like Christ. And that is, that's what is um, in mind, I think, where Paul's talking about we're, we're being um, glorified. We're, we're, we're going from glory to glory or with ever-increasing glory. So it sounds, so it sounds like, like you're talking about, about sanctification. sanctification. Yeah, so it sounds like you're talking well, about sanctification there. But specifically becoming, becoming like Christ and um, taking, on his, uh, taking on his own attributes through, um, through the gospel, the way that Paul so, describes it okay. in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Okay, but again, going back to chapter 8, verse 30, are, are you saying that you, you think that glorified here is more talking about sanctification then? Well, I think that, that the new birth is a, is a glorification of, of sorts. My point with Second Corinthians is that, um, that the glorification is, you can, you can say we are being glorified right now, and we, in a sense we have been, because it's mentioned in the present tense. So you could say that, okay, we've been glorified in the new birth. That's taken place. Um, you know, God counts us as sons and daughters. Um, you know, we ha- we are, we're his, we're his own possession. Just like Israel was his own possession. And they were, they had a glory because of that, because they belonged to him. Um, we have a glory because we belong to God. But also that, that, that glorification in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is going on too. And we're becoming more like Christ as we meditate on the, the things contained in the Gospels. Christ's glory beca- is becoming our glory. That's, that's the idea in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Um, so I tend to view there in 8.30 that this glorification is about um, not our sanctification, although I think that sanctification is in, within the, the general context, but the, the, just that part glorified is about God's presence amongst his people. And so previously, uh, Eric, I do agree with you that if this is talking about uh, Jews previously, that that makes a ton of sense. Those whom he foreknew, he also glorified. And I want to read uh, just three passages from the Old Testament that I think emphasize this. They're all from the the prophet Isaiah. Um, In Isaiah chapter uh, 44, verse 23, it says, uh, Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. So um, going back many, many minutes ago to Greg, when you were, uh, what you were asking and kind of how you, at least if I understood you correctly, um, how you were talking about the glory of God in Romans 1, that's God's glory. And then he caused it to dwell in Israel. And in Israel, God was showing forth his glory to the world. Um, another passage that we've talked about before is in Isaiah 49. I know that we have uh, slight differences based on that conversation before. I want to read uh, verses, uh, I think, three, for, 
through 5. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. I know I'm on record, at least for our conversations, thinking that's the actual nation of Israel. You guys, I think, both said that this is about Christ. Um, two verses later, we all agree that that's about Christ because the New Testament tells us that's about Christ. Um, so uh, verse four says, but I have said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Verse five, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored, or again, glorified. I'm glorified in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. So um, at least uh, about Christ, but also uh, also possibly also about the nation of Israel and about Christ in particular. And then one more from Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verse five, behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has, past tense, glorified you. So God glorified Israel by being by dwelling in their midst, causing his name to dwell, that he made them to be his unique possession so that his glory would extend to the earth. Isaiah 55, uh, 5 is, I think, for, foretelling that the nations, the, foretelling the church that we would likewise come. That's the concept that is being described in Romans 9, 10, and 11, this blending together of believing Jew and believing Gentile. And so I, I do agree that God's presence amongst Old Testament Israel glorified them and they were to give glory to God. So it's kind of a, a two-way path. Um, they weren't glorious without the presence of God, but they were to glorify God by obeying him and keeping the law and, and being a light unto the nations. Now in the church, all who are in Christ Jesus now share that. They went from glory to glory. In fact, this 2 Corinthians 3 is a surpassing glory because God no longer just dwells in a tabernacle. He just no longer dwells just in a temple, but God has glorified all in Christ Jesus to a magnified extent, a more glorified extent from glory to glory uh, for all who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not about our sanctification, although that's part of it. It's about the presence of God amongst his people. And then we are to glorify God. Um, so he glorified us and now we are to glorify him. And there's a lot of passages that talk about that. Jesus says, you know, um, that if we bear much fruit, we glory, you know, God is glorified by his people bearing fruit. That's what Israel is supposed to do. That's what the church is supposed to do. Um, so I hope that's not a convoluted definition. I hope that makes sense. You guys can tell me if I'm if I'm not making any sense, but um, I would define it differently than sanctification, and I would tie it primarily to the presence of God, which of course will sanctify us. Um, and so I, I don't think that those are radically different or something. But I would. That's well. Let me say. let me give mine my answer to that, and then let's maybe we want to interrogate each other's answers. Um, I my def if someone came up to say, Greg, what does Paul mean when he says? we've been glorified or God has glorified us. I would go right back to the lexical definition and I'm going to pull out a couple of things. I'm going to read directly from that. To do honor to, to render it excellent and to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. I think when Paul says we have been glorified, I believe that means God has done honor to us. He has rendered us excellent and our dignity and worth as being in Christ has is manifest and and acknowledged is how I would answer that question. Uh, Joe, I like your definition better than my own. Um, let me let me clarify wow. something though that we talked about. We talked about uh, when I mentioned sanctification. Sanctification is mentioned in Second Corinthians three eighteen. I I brought that up not not because you know I think that's the limited meaning in Romans eight thirty. Um, because Romans 8.30 is mentioned in the past tense. Glorified is in the past tense. So I, I recognize that 
this is a past act. It's not so much talking about something that's still going on. Um, but I guess my point was just that when I mentioned the new birth, um, you know, like sometimes Paul will say, you know, uh, we, we have been sanctified. There's a past tense. Uh, what is it? First Corinthians one, two, to those who have been sanctified. Um, I, th- so I, because sanctification has more than, I mean, we're not talking about sanctification today, but sanctification is used in more than one way. Yes, we need to explore exactly. that just like we're exploring glorification. Yes. And so I think that, I, I guess where I was going with it was, um, and I wasn't, my definition wasn't uh, nearly as clear as Joe's or, or yours, Greg, but <clears throat> where I was going with it is that the new birth, we could say, and being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, um, all of that is you know, I think included in our glorification. But our glory is also increasing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So there's a, there's a sense in which, yes, we have been glorified, but that glory is also increasing. But either way, it's still now. It's not future. It's right now. That's, that's the whole point I was making. My definition was not um, stated clearly. Joe, I, I like yours better. I'll probably change a reword bind um, to to be more in line with uh, with what you said. Right, I feel like Joe's answers how right. Like I think <laughs> yeah. my I, my definition I feel like answers what mm-hmm. I feel like Joe's definition answers how. Yeah, I think I, Greg, I, I liked I liked how you defined it and and using you know the the, the defin you know these definitions and applying that directly. And I um I didn't I, I mean I didn't disagree with anything. I I don't think. Um, and Eric, I like the way that you're clarifying it. I at least appreciate that what I was saying made, made some sense. You know, we talk about these, some of these concepts and thinking about glory and glorification. Sometimes it, they are, they're tough to define. I understand why some of the lexical entries would, you know, use glorious in the definition because it's, uh, it's, it is hard to define for, for a lot of people. Um, but what you just brought in that aspect, um, about growing in it, I think is important and gets kind of full circle back to the reality that most people, when they talk about glorification, they think about that final state where really there probably is no more glory to come, right? That, that final ending point when um, we are, the process is over. Um, but we're in process now. And I think that if I can just kind of distill to the very essence of why I think it's important to bring this conversation that we're having right now to bear is that I don't want to just think, okay, there is a time when this process will be over and that's glorious. That's true. But I don't want to miss the fact that this moment right now is also glorious and that this is part of that from glory to glory. What Israel was doing, that was glorious. And, and when we talked about that, my intention, even in the kingdom of God, it's not to pull down Israel or to pull down the church. It's to say that God is, he has this incredibly glorious plan that is increasing in glory. And, um, and so that doesn't, sometimes I think we get so focused on thinking, oh man, won't it be glory? Like when we're in the sweet by and by, are we missing the reality that this is the day that the Lord has made and that this moment right here is also glorious, that we can glorify God right now. We don't have to wait until we're dead and we're in his presence to sing his praises and to bring him glory. We can bring him glory right now. And so I think that's part of the trick that we we sometimes kick the can too far down the road. Not that, that the can doesn't extend all the way down the road, but that we miss this moment. That's why I think this discussion is so important. I don't know if um, if you guys would disagree with that um, or if you would have anything to, to add on to that, but maybe as we get near the end of our conversation, maybe if we can just kind of 
that's that's kind of the exclamation point that I would put on this. Glorification, as you've heard it before, about the future, I don't disagree with that. There is glory to come, but also Christian, especially, no, there is glory now. Even your present suffering, even your present difficulties, even your present persecution, all of these things um, is part of God's glorious design, and he is with us all along the way. That is how it's glorious, that as we walk this path, he is with us. But, but Greg, I think you're right. You're, I think you did probably answer it more of the what um, and, and how is that. It's the fact that he has shared his glory with us, and now he invites us to, to give him glory by producing fruit um, as, a, as a result of his grace in that ongoing sanctification. So again, I, Eric, I, I think that there are parts of your definition as well that probably I'll try and add to my, uh, my future discussion as we move forward. So I don't know, thoughts, thoughts that you guys have as we begin to uh, wind down this discussion on glorification? No, amen. I had one thing you mentioned, um, you know, to, to limit glorification of the future is not, you know, not appropriate. Um, and people do this with other things too, like eternal life. You know, they, they act like, well, eternal life is only in the future. But actually, um, you know, John five twenty four. truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. Okay. This is eternal, eternal life, life that they know you, right? Yes, exactly. And you have that right now. This is... Yes, there is a sense in which we, we do enter into eternal life in the future, but eternal life starts in this life when someone believes in Christ, according to Jesus' own words. So to just kind of limit all these things to the future and act like, you know, God's not done anything yet, but he will do it in the future. Well, that, no, that's, that's, not, that's not an accurate way to look at all these things. I say amen to that. Um, you know, there is, there is glory to come, and there is glory right now. And so... Um, uh, I will give you guys the last word on this if you want it. Anything we haven't, or we can open up a new can of worms, I suppose. But I think that we've probably at least hit on the main things, uh, as Greg, as you mentioned before. I mean, there are, for anybody who would want to do the, the word study, um, there's a lot more verses that we didn't talk about. But conceptually, at least I've, I've satisfied what I was um, you know, prepared to at least discuss as I thought about these things uh, leading up to this discussion in the past. You guys have anything else that hasn't been um, put out on the table before we say goodbye uh, for another episode? No. Anyone who's watching this has learned all there is to know about this this topic. So I think we've uh, <laughs> we did I it. Think, I think we we accomplished our goal. It's complete, exhaustive. Uh, I think nothing more could be said. Nothing more to learn. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, on that uh, uh, strange note, we'll, <laughs> we'll say goodbye. <laughs> uh, uh, of course, uh, you are uh, being facetious, but uh, I think it's at least a good start. Um, hopefully, we can say that. And so, uh, uh, Greg. Eric, thank you once again for uh, your participation and sharing your insight. And, um, you know, I, uh, I appreciate uh, viewing these things from different um, angles. And I hope that uh, if anybody's still watching, that they likewise find that valuable to, to think about these things in ways that maybe we haven't before and uh, to, to stretch our own understanding to realize that uh, glorification is truly glorious, not being silly, but that is a, that is a real thing. And so uh, hopefully we understand the glorious truth that God has decided to cause his name to dwell amongst his people, that especially in the church for both believing Jew and believing Gentile, put their faith in the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit has come to take residence in us as the temple of God on earth. What a glorious thing that is. And so as we think about obeying our King and glorifying our God and getting equipped to do that, that's really what that phrase that we often say at the end of this is about, that we want to live to the glory of God. He has glorified us. So let's give him glory in return. Amen. So friends, uh, until we see you next time, uh, do just that. Get equipped, obey your king, and glorify your God.